This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McCrae. We close out a holiday special as we look back to a conversation with Wayne Kreitz, a farmer who made national news in the early 1980s when he and other farmers defied a federal judge's orders to remove grain that was rightfully theirs from a bankrupt elevator. The conclusion of that interview is our topic for this week's Farm in the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. As we head into 2022, we all know that the price of fertilizer has moved sharply higher. That's why we're taking a look at Pivot Bioproven as a way to replace some of that synthetic nitrogen we normally use. Over the past two years, we've seen a yield boost of five to seven bushels, which is nice, but the ability to replace some of that synthetic nitrogen with Pivot Bioproven can be a big game changer. In fact, Pivot Bioproven can replace about 40 pounds of synthetic top dress nitrogen. That's an advantage worth exploring for us, and I hope it's something you'll consider as well. You can learn about field trials in your area and get more information by logging on at pivotbio.com. Last week, we began the story of Wayne Kreitz, who was farming in southeast Missouri in the 1970s. In 1979, he stored 32,331 bushels of his soybeans at the Ristine, Missouri elevator. In early 1980, he learned that elevator went bankrupt. He wasn't too worried. He had warehouse receipts for his grain, and he'd been told by state officials that the soybeans were there and he'd soon be able to get his grain. But a federal judge stepped in and ruled that the grain was part of the assets of the elevator and would soon be sold to pay the elevator's debts. Wayne and other local farmers subsequently removed Wayne's grain from that elevator and took it to an MFA elevator in Bernie, Missouri. That's where we pick up the second half of our show, as Wayne and other farmers helping him decide to defy the judge's orders once again, taking his soybeans from MFA and beginning to scatter and deliver them to other elevators wherever those farmers can sell them and get the money back to Wayne. So I decided to go back and load up my grain. All right. So I called Eric Thompson, and I said, Eric, I said, uh, I'm going to go back to the elevator and, and load up my grain. Well, he said, Wayne, that's put us in a really bind if we let you take your grain out of that elevator. But he said, again, we've been anticipating this, that it would probably happen. So the lawyer said that if I was willing to uh, – go into their office, go up to the manager and say, I've came to remove my grain and I'm willing to use force if necessary to remove my grain, then that will relieve MFA of all. Well, I knew what this was going to do to me because when you use the words, I'm prepared to use force, I knew there was court case coming and this is going to be used against me big time. But MFA was an innocent bystander that I had basically drug into this thing and also eric told me he said wayne if you'll come down the night before he said nah, my manager may be there we got the grain in an overhead loadout he said they may show you you push this button the grain's going to come out when you get a truck load push this button it's going to stop now that's because <laughs> that's how i got the grain out of the elevator yeah. 
So I just told the farmers to scatter with it. So, so about 77 truckloads went back out of the MFA elevator at Bernie. But you knew you couldn't take them anywhere personally. The judge had it locked down. Not only that, the judge had put out a court order that anybody that got any of this grain, any of the elevator that accepted any of this grain was going to be considered part of the conspiracy, uh, all of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So when they got it, uh, I, I told the farm, I said, you just scatter with it. If you can sell it, however you can do it. I, at this point, the money was elite. I, I didn't want the judge getting a bushel of my grain. And I'd get phone calls, Wayne, uh, we got something for you. I'd go meet. <laughs> they had sacks of $100 bills. When you sell, <laughs> oh, I mean, I got money. So I went down to Van Gibbs, my banker, and I said, man, I said, I need safe deposit boxes to store some money in right now. And I had a good friend, Bob Harden, him and his wife went down there and rented some boxes so <laughs> we're taking money down we're stashing in the boxes you know and everything like that so i've got bills to pay but meanwhile the government wouldn't take what is today the fsa office would not take any form of payment correct no see i had a crop loan and that was the original deal and i was going to go down and when i sold the grain at bernie through this grain dealer when we got about three trucks unloaded, he's issued me a check. My dad and my brother was lined up to go to Risco, cash the checks. Then we was going to take the cash over to the SCAF's office, pay off my loan. Because I had $4 and something barred against the grain. The grain was worth almost $11 a bushel then. And then beans, I got to sell them. That's the only way I got to pay off the thing. So this is what's really put me in a bind at this time. They won't accept cash or check for the payment on my loan. So anyway, so I went back in the office, and I called the ASCS office back. And when I called him back, I said, this is Wayne again. I said, did I misunderstand you, or did you say that I could not pay off my loan in cash or check? He said, Wayne, that's, and he said, you know, I'd do anything I could. Because, I mean, we were friends. He said, I'd do anything I could to help you. But he said, there's nothing I can do. Well, then I got the uh, a letter from the ASCS office saying, that they were calling my loan. And if I didn't pay off my loan, I was going to forfeit my grain. <laughs> they refused cash or check, and now they're saying I'm going to forfeit my grain. So that really aggravated me. So that's when instead of arresting the federal marshals and doing all that, I decided to go to raid and load the grain back up again. So anyway, I took the grain up to the SS office, and I said, you know, I've, I had the letter there. They'd call my loan. And I said, I don't have uh, the money to pay off the loan, but it said that you would accept cash check or the commodity. And so I said, you designate the elevators that you want me to, and I will haul enough grain to those elevators to pay off my debt. They called Washington, D.C. and come back, and they said, no, we cannot accept the commodity. So I said, I don't know what you folks want, but I said, until you decide, I'm going to sell this grain, and I'm going to do everything I can to pay off my my bills. And that's when the farmers began to sell it then and and, and bring you the cash in paper bags. Bring in the cash in paper bags. Meanwhile, though, this court battle is continuing, and that's when they eventually, you're on the stand in Russellville, and the the judge is going to pin you down on who helped you eventually, right? This is at uh, Little Rock. Oh, at Little Rock, okay. And so he puts me on a witness stand, and they have these six lawyers there, and they demand that I tell them uh, 
you know, the names of the farmers and everybody that had helped me. And I refused to do that. And he told me if I didn't answer the questions that he was going to find me in contempt of court. And he said, Mr. Christ, do you understand that contempt of court can be a life sentence? Because we're not putting you in court to punish you. We're putting you in jail to coerce you to purge yourself of contempt of court. And as long as you remain stubborn and, 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 and will not answer this court's question, you will remain in jail forever if necessary. Do you understand that? So when I went back in, he put me back on. He said, does the lawyers explain? I said, yes, sir, they have. And said, all right. He said, I want you to start answering this court's questions. And I said, uh, Your Honor, I said, I don't know the proper language to use, but I'm going to take the Fifth Amendment. Wow. Set him off. He had a pencil. He drawed back, throwed it clean across the courtroom. Boy, it was quiet for a while. And finally the judge said, I'm going to get a ruling from the Attorney General whether you can take the Fifth Amendment or not. So they recessed the hearing. A couple of weeks later, they reconvened, put me back on the witness stand, and they said, Mr. Kreitz, said, you've been a granted immunity to prosecution that waives your Fifth Amendment rights. Anything you say will not be held against you. You answer this court's questions, you can go free. Do you understand that? Well, here's all these people that helped me. All i got to do is start naming them. I walk out free, and then they're charged. But they already have their names. It's not like they don't. They they wrote them all down and took their pictures. <laughs> but when I refused to do that, he said, "Mr. White, you'll take Mr. Kreitz into custody. You will incarcerate him, and he will remain there until he purges himself contempt of court." And that's when they took me to Russellville and incarcerated me there. When that door slams, you, there's no sound like it. You know, I mean, and everything. But anyway, I was there for 30-some days, but I'd been there about 20-some days. And uh, uh, Senator Dole, yeah, he was the uh, chairman of the Committee on Courts. He asked the judge to release me to come to Washington, D.C. and testify. And the judge refused. So the Senate uh, ordered me to come to Washington, D.C. and testify. The judge still refused. So when he refused to allow me to come out, the courts or the Justice Department contacted Judge Baker and informed him if he did not allow me to come to the uh, Congress to testify, that they were going to find him in contempt of Congress and put him in jail with me. (laughs) (laughs) So he agreed to allow me to go. And Sandy and I, we loaded up on a plane, went to Washington, D.C., and we we testified before the House, uh, the Senate uh, Subcommittee on Courts, plus we went uh, to the House and testified. But my opening statement when I testified before the the, uh, uh, Senator Dole's committee, I said, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, I said, I believe there's more justice in this country than there is anywhere in the world. But I said, justice is not always brought in set in your lap. Sometimes you have to stand up, and sometimes you have to reach for it. And I believe for every person that's unjustly treated will not stand up, then the next person does has to stand a little taller and have to reach a little higher. And enough people treated unjustly will not stand up. Justice will get a reach of us all. And I believe that farmers are being unjustly treated in these elevator bankruptcies, and we need to change the law. And, and from that point on, that started that. I went back 
to uh, the uh, courthouse or back to jail. And finally, the pressure got so great on the judge, he said, I'm going to close this case and there will be no longer uh, any need of keeping Mr. Cratch in jail. But in closing this, I'm going to impose a contempt of court fine of $240,000 to uh, increase at $50,000 a day until he purges himself contempt of court, and then he released me. At that point, when I got out of jail, why uh, people was wanting me to speak and everything else. Well, Gravit, Arkansas, they wanted me to be the grand... Uh, uh, their parade and speak in the park at their 78th annual Gravit Day festivities. I went down there. I uh, met with Bob Pickett, was a chamber of commerce that introduced or invited me. Uh, and I hadn't been there in no time. And he had a country and western store, and I was in the office. But anyway, phone rang, and uh, Bob answered it, and he said, Wayne, this is for you. Well, it was George Welch, one of the federal marshals that we'd got to be friends with at the elevator. He'd been transferred to Fort Smith, a second marshal in charge down there. And he said, Wayne, he said, you got a problem. And I said, what is it? And he said, well, the federal judge is uh, going to uh, arrest you there. And uh, he said, they tried to get us to do it, and we told him we wasn't going to do it. And they've got a federal marshal from Brooklyn, New York, coming in, Chuck Capagrico, that's going to do it. And so what it was, the next day I told Bob Pickett about the anonymous phone call, but I knew who it was. And he said, I mean, it's just a crank. Don't worry about it. Well, I knew it wasn't a crank. I knew it was serious, but I knew if it was going to happen, it's going to happen sooner or later. So I'm ready to get over with it. So the next day, uh, the federal marshal come in and uh, we were there in the back offices bob pickett had went down to get a lot of activities going for their festivities and everything and federal marshal walked up to me and he said are you wayne christ and i said yes and he introduced himself as a federal marshal and he said uh, uh do you have any money or valuables on you and i said well yeah i got my wedding ring my watch and about 150 dollars he said well i'm ordering you to turn them over to me and I said, I'm not going to do that. He said, are you refusing a direct order from a federal marshal? Yeah, yeah, I guess I am. He said, you do realize I'm a federal marshal? And he raised his voice where because they're building a case against me. And, and what they're doing, this judge had issued this uh, contempt of court fine of 200-some-odd thousand. So what they're going to do is start taking my property to satisfy this fine. And so, anyway, so and I refused to do it. He raised his voice. He didn't get smart, but he said, "Are you refusing direct order from a federal marshal?" I said, "Yes, sir." Well, I'd borrowed a, a, a van from the Ford dealer. He had loaned me one because they'd confiscate. So anyway, I've got it down there. Well, a guy runs in. He said, "Wayne, they're getting ready to confiscate your van out front." <laughs> so I walked out. There they were, back in the wrecker up to my van. So I stepped off between it, and they backed it right up against me, and he told me if I didn't move, they were going to arrest me and, you know, take me to jail. And I said, well, I don't want to go to jail, but I accept better than what you're doing. So I said, but I said, you're going to have a problem because the people were really upset because they knew I was being set up, and the people down there was beginning to get hostile. And I turned to the federal marshal. I said, why don't you go ahead and let me be the grand marshal of the parade? And I said, these people will go on down to park. And I said, if you've got to arrest me then, you know, go ahead. And the 
grandma when the parade was i stepped off on the viewing watched the parade go by i looked up and they were backing up to my van again so i went back and got in between them again he said i'm gonna arrest you and i said i understand that but if you're going to do it you better do it very quickly and quietly so he arrested me and handcuffed me well instead of the people going to the park here they came and they surrounded the vehicle and a sheriff's deputy was driving, and they had another federal marshal, and I was in the back seat with Chuck Greco. And they surrounded the car, and they started rocking the car. These people are really upset. And I kept telling them, I said, you better get us out of here. I said, Chuck, these people are not going to, you know, and I was telling you, you're, you're in serious trouble. And so uh, the local uh, deputy, he kept honking and just kind of pushing away and finally got open and, and got us outside and that's when they took me to fort smith and put me in jail down there well they charged me with obstruction of justice not for stealing beans not for anything i'm charged with obstruction of justice they get me on the witness stand and i mean you they brought in bear jackson he's supposed to be the toughest federal prosecutor and i mean he got his name right from Bear Jackson. But anyway, he is dragging me over the coals. He's calling me everything. He's making me like I'm the worst criminal that ever existed, you know. Well, it went on a while. And finally, he said, Mr. Kratz, I want you to tell the jury. Tell them the truth for one time. You're doing all this so you can run for politics. Now, this is 82. I did run for all our politics in 86 but i'd never in my wildest imagination ever dream that i'd run for politics but anyway he's telling the jury that's the reason why i've done all this stuff i looked over at the jury i told the jury i said you know i said uh, i'm very proud of the battle i'm fighting i'm very proud of my reputation and i can tell you i certainly don't want to ruin my reputation by becoming a politician so anyway when the uh, thing was over uh, the judge summed up the jury, and he said, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is a criminal proceedings. I will not accept a hung jury. You can't imagine what goes through your mind when you're facing a jury coming in with a verdict. It's going, you're either going to go home or you're, you're leaving in handcuffs going to prison, and the jury come in said, Would you handle, hand the verdict to the bailiff? And the bailiff brought it in took it up to the judge. The judge looked at it. And he said, was this a unanimous decision? Yes, Your Honor. Are you sure this is a unanimous decision? Yes, Your Honor. He just pitched it. It fell on the floor, and the bailiff picked it up. said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, find the defendant not guilty. You just can't imagine, you know, it's over with. We've won, you know, and, and I get to go home. Well, the old Bear Jackson jumped up, Your Honor, I demand a Oh, this jury. So every one of them had to stand up, and every one of them had to voice their verdict, and every one of them was not guilty. It's over with. No, it's not over with. G. Thomas Isley finds me in civil contempt and finds me three hundred and twenty some thousand dollars to accumulate at $50,000 a year at 10% interest. <laughs> And that is still going on, you know, as far as I know. It's into the millions now, you know. So anyway, so. You came back then to farm. Could you, 
Could you keep farming? What happened? We kept farming, but what they did, they put out an order if there was anybody, anybody had, if we had banks and any elevators, and they just financially just down to where. And in 1977, 87, yes, I mean 87, we were still continuing to farm. I finally made the decision, hey, we can get out right now, and I believe we can pay everybody off we own. But if we continue trying to do what we're doing, and we still had people that would, you know, provide chemicals, but I said we're going to hurt a lot of people. So we simply made a business decision that we'd gone as far as we could go. We were able to satisfy all of our creditors, uh, equable allowed me to uh, cut five acres and this home out of here. Has anything changed much since then as far as those laws? Some states have, but some states haven't. We got uh, the law on the national level. uh, We uh, introduced legislation, and and when I testified before Congress up there, before the House, uh, part of my testimony was is that the farmers are being unjustly treated in these bankruptcies, and what we need is a good, simple law. It needs to be simple enough if two lawyers take it in separate rooms and read it, they come out and say it says the same thing. <laughs> they like to fell out of their chairs laughing. And we started out with a really good bill, and it basically stated if your elevator goes bankrupt and you have a valid warehouse receipt or scale ticket, that was priority claim to that grain. And they had a period of so many weeks to make determination of ownership and release that grain. That grain would, would, would not be thrown into the pool with everything else. It would be treated as separate. And if you had a valid claim to that, they had a certain time to release that grain back to the farmers and they would use the market price of the day the elevator went bankrupt good simple bill i mean two lawyers take it in separate rooms and read it every time i went up for a hearing the bill went from there to there to there to there and whereas and i was going across the country promoting this support this bill this is what the bill says then support this bill i think this is what this bill says support this bill i have not a idea what the hell's in this bill. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, when you get the four wins and wherefores and all of that. Illinois had the best bill. By four. Every grain elevator is licensed and bonded. The only thing, each elevator's bond stands on its own. The state of Illinois set up a fund. The elevators liked it because they paid in the same amount to the bonding, only it went into this state fund, and this state fund built up. When an elevator went bankrupt in Illinois, they had two weeks to make determination of ownership and return that to the farmers. Good, simple bill. The elevators liked it for two different reasons. Instead of having, and, and, and a bond does nowhere near cover the amount of grain that's in that elevator. But this was a pool of money. So when an elevator went bankrupt, they took the money out of this pool and paid off all the thing. Then the Department of Agriculture, the state of Illinois, took over as sole owner of the grain. And then they fought it through the courts. Whatever they could, it went back into this pool. 
elevators really liked it because once this grain got to a certain level, then they could quit paying into it. And if they didn't have any losses, they wouldn't have to pay that bond. But once it dropped to a certain level, then it kicked back in and they went to paying a bond. Good, simple bill. But after the farmers, uh, you know, we had a pretty strong political organization at that time, you know, and I mean, we had some influence and everything. But eventually the farmers quit fighting. The lawyers didn't like the bill because, <laughs> but anyway, so anyway, they reverted the bill basically back to like it was. So we're basically where we were? We're basically back where we started. Forty years later, Wayne's story is still one known to many in agriculture. His experiences are chronicled in the book, One Man with Courage. As Wayne mentioned, he got out of full-time farming in the late 1980s. He still resides near Puxico, Missouri, which is where I interviewed him. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com, including if you happen to miss the first part of this show. You can also follow our daily features, American Countryside, on many local radio stations, and we're also at AmericanCountryside.com and American Countryside on Facebook as well. And don't forget, we're posting ideas for revitalizing rural and agricultural America at TotalTownMakeover.com. If you go under the Resources tab there, you'll find many of our TV, radio, and podcast features that will give you ideas for where you live. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com.